Good morning. Like Tom said, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount recently. We're going to continue with that today. And uh, we've been talking about kingdom culture, the culture of the kingdom of God that Jesus brings. And this first part of our series has been about uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what's known as the Beatitudes, which we've been calling kingdom people. So in describing the culture of the kingdom of God, we're starting with what are the people like? And these Beatitudes are sort of markers of what the people of the kingdom of God are like. What characterizes Jesus' people as they know him and as he forms his character in them? And we're now in the seventh out of eight Beatitudes, and the one we'll be looking at today, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. I want to start by just kind of clarifying the term a little bit. So peace, the word peace and peacemakers, it's come to take on a lot of meanings, a lot of images in our culture, in our popular culture. So I I wonder, what, like a little word association, don't do it out loud, but what comes to your mind when you you hear the word peace? What, What pops into your head? When you hear the word peacemaker, what sort of image comes to your mind. Or imagine your, your average friend, your average neighbor, the average person on the street. What might come to their mind when they think of peace or peacemaking? Maybe it's something like this. Maybe, you know, some, some kind of hippie from the 60s holding the peace sign, like John Lennon here, who, or, who sang anthems like, give peace a chance, or imagine all the people living life in peace. Maybe that comes to people's mind. Maybe something like this. Uh, this, I don't know if you can see it. This is a car I pulled up behind recently at a red light. All these bumper stickers, you've got the peace sign, the classic peace sign, the circle, and uh, there's a sticker on the bottom left that says, make coffee, not war, uh, and tree hugger, and, and then today's kind of popular one, coexist, coexist. Maybe we think of that as peace. We all kind of coexist. Maybe something came to your mind like the Camp David Accord, in the, in the 70s, you got kind of peace in the Middle East, uh, people uh, drawing a truce together to put an end to conflict or hostility, uh, signing a, a pact or a truce of peace uh, to put an end to conflict. Maybe something like this, though. When you think of peace, you think uh, this is somebody's blog called uh, Finding My Inner Peace. And, you know, it's kind of oceanside, maybe a little yoga, it's quiet. Maybe some of you are dying for some of that kind of peace and quiet in your life. A lot of people are. Or maybe when you hear the word peacemaker, this comes to mind. It, um, it comes to Google's mind. So I, I did an image search of peacemaker, and the first thing that came up was a whole page of Colt 45 peacemakers, which, uh, hey, maybe that's what it takes. But just to say, we have a lot of different ideas of what peace is all about, what peace means, what peacemaking looks like in our culture. And uh, our, our task today is to really think about what does Jesus mean? What is Jesus saying when he talks about peace and peacemaking? The word peacemaker is a, it's a good translation. It's a compound word made up of the noun peace and the form of the verb make. Uh, that, that translates the Greek pretty well. So the Greek word that Jesus uses uh, includes a noun for peace and the Greek word, uh, form of the verb to make or to do a very active action verb. And when Jesus is talking about peace, what he would have in mind is the Jewish concept, the Hebrew concept of shalom, which is deep. I think it's actually probably the greatest word in the history of language. Shalom, it means 
So much more than just peace, so much more than just a, a feeling or the absence of conflict. When, when Jewish people would greet each other and say shalom, they're not just saying, hey, how you doing? Or peace. They were saying, God's full blessing be on you. By shalom, they meant uh, not just a feeling, they meant peace, health, everything made right, righteousness, justice, personal and relational wholeness. Shalom. That's what Jesus would, what would mean when he was thinking of peace. And he used the word to make or to do. So we're to make peace, to extend God's shalom into the world around us, to be agents of God's shalom, to actively bring it, to actively make it and do it. So Jesus is the authority on these terms. Jesus is the one who defines what peace is, what peacemaking is. We're going to go by his authoritative definition. And Jesus himself is the ultimate peacemaker. So these words that make up peacemaking in this beatitude can also be found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Now let's read this together. If it comes up, there we go. Talking about Jesus, it says, His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. The Greek words here, peace and making, are the same exact words that make up the compound word peacemaking in Matthew. And this is what Jesus did. He made peace. So we looked at the first half of Ephesians 2 a couple weeks ago, and we talked about mercy and the mercy that God shows us. And the first half of Ephesians 2 was all about what God did to make us right with him when we were distant from him and his enemies. Uh, the first half of Ephesians 2 was all about our recon God reconciling us to him. But then Ephesians 2 goes on to elaborate on this reconciliation between us and God and shows how it, it carries over and spills over to lead to reconciliation between us and one another. So if you turn with me, we're going to read the second half of Ephesians 2, if you've got a Bible or an electronic version. We'll start in verse 11. It says, Therefore... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of God. 
Imagine, if you will, you go to a church on a Sunday, and you see in one row uh, someone you know works on the Hillary Clinton campaign, sitting across the aisle from someone you know works on the Rand Paul campaign. And in the row behind them, you see uh, a major authority figure in town sitting next to some protesters who march regularly against that person's authority. And in the row behind them, you see a former voodoo priest from the neighborhood who used to come by the church and pronounce curses over it and its leaders. And he's sitting next to the worship leader. And then in the very last row, you think you see, and you do, it's a former member of ISIS who's recently come to faith in Jesus sitting next to family members of a home that he destroyed just a few months before. Can you imagine that? Well, welcome to the New Testament. Welcome to the New Testament. In the early church, the level of reconciliation between us and God is the primary thing, but the level of reconciliation between people is astounding. In the early church, you had people from all the various political factions of that day and age. You had zealots, Jewish people who, who advocated for violent uprising and overthrow of the Roman authorities. And you had tax collectors, Jewish people who collaborated with the Roman authorities in some shady ways. And you had some Romans. You had priests who devoted their lives to worship in the Jewish temple and to keeping the temple sacred and pure. And you had Roman soldiers who had desecrated the temple by setting up images and idols inside of it. And you had Saul, who in his misdirected religious zeal was violent and actively seeking to destroy the church and its people. Then join the church and become a leader. In the New Testament, we see the gospel heal divisions between people that are every bit as profound as any division between people in our world today. Ephesians 2 addresses the particular divide between Jews and Gentiles, or non-Jews. In this passage, we see that they were separate, but are now joined together. That those who were excluded from Israel are now fellow members of the household of God. That foreigners and strangers are now fellow citizens. That two have become one. And that the barrier and dividing wall of hostility between them has been destroyed in Jesus. How did Jesus make peace between them? Well, he didn't start by sitting them down across from each other, helping Jews and Gentiles hear each other out. He didn't have them focused on each other, first of all. He started by making peace between both groups and God. Because the most profound division that existed was not that between Jews and Gentiles, but it was that between Jews and God who were trying to please God by the law but couldn't do it, and between Gentiles and God who were not trying to please God at all. And Jesus healed the most profound divide, which was between both groups and God. He preached peace to those who were near and peace to those who were far away. He himself was their peace and made peace between them. And all of a sudden, all these people had a peace with God. They had a whole new identity. They were a whole new people. And all of a sudden, they were part of one family, one household, one humanity, one new humanity, Ephesians 2 tells us. A whole new people. In fact, do you know where the word Christian comes from? 
It first appears in Acts chapter 11, the church in Antioch, which is explicit, we're explicitly told is a church where different groups of people coexisted. And the people in Antioch were trying to figure out, what do we call this group? What do we call this, these people, this church? They'd never seen anything like it before. You had Jews, you had Greeks, you had Romans, you had North Africans, you had soldiers and civilians, you had rulers and peasants, landowners and their workers, all part of this one body doing life together. The authorities said, what, well, what do we call this group? Who are they? So they, they took the Latin suffix I-A-N, which designates a nation or a people group like Egyptian or Italian or Armenian, and they said, well, the thing that seems to bind all these people together is this Christ that they talk about, so we'll call them Christians, Christians. It's a profound word. A new humanity in Jesus. He made a way for all these people to have peace with God in a way that they could never attain on their own, and thus open up the possibility for peace with one another in a way that they could never attain on their own. But true peace, true shalom, flows out of peace with God. Otherwise, we may be able to coexist for a time. We may be able to make truces and treaties to keep people from blowing each other up for a time, but that does not eliminate the dividing walls of hostility. It doesn't eliminate the hatred between groups. It doesn't open up forgiveness and healing of past hurts and past sins. Only peace with God can do that. The most profound form of peacemaking is peace with God. And for us, the most profound form of peacemaking, I think, is actually to do evangelism and to share the gospel of peace with people. Because to be a peacemaker, you first need to have peace with God. And true peacemaking flows out of shalom that we experience with God. But then for God's people, for kingdom people, we don't just receive peace, we don't just enjoy shalom with God, but we extend it, we, we make it. We do it. We carry his shalom to the world around us, into our families, into our communities, into our relationships. Now again, the, the divides between people in the New Testament were every bit as profound as any divide between people in the world today. And the power of the gospel to heal those divides in the New Testament is every bit as powerful today. I've been reading recently about Christian leaders in country of Rwanda, which you may be aware experienced a terrible genocide in the, the mid-90s. Rwanda's population primarily made up of two ethnic groups, and in, around 1994, one of the majority ethnic group sought to systematically eliminate the other in what's probably the worst genocide to ever take place in the world. Anywhere between 500,000 and a million Tutsi people were put to death in the course of days in gruesome, violent ways. A lot of them sought shelter in churches, thinking that would be a safe haven, only to find that they had been rounded up there so they could be easily taken out. Incredible amount of pain and hurt and violence. Now, how, how does a nation move on from something like that? How does a nation even continue to exist, and, and let alone move forward, made up of these two same ethnic groups, one of whom tried to eliminate the other one. Now, laws and UN peacekeeping forces can help and help people to coexist, but only the gospel of peace can bring true shalom, to true healing 
true forgiveness. During the genocide, a lot of churches and church leaders were part of the problem, but in the aftermath, it's amazing to learn about church leaders in Rwanda who took the lead in making peace, in making restoration, and leading the way in healing. They found their peace in Jesus. They found healing in Jesus, forgiveness in Jesus. There was so much hurt, so much pain, so much guilt, so much blood on people's hands, so much grief, so much loss. And it was the people who found shalom in Jesus and then worked together across ethnic lines who led the way for healing and restoration in that nation. Pastors and bishops who were both Hutu and Tutsi realized they had an identity that transcended those things, an identity in Jesus, made right one new humanity, and they led the way for healing, the long, slow road to healing in their nation. The divides between people in the New Testament were just as profound as any divide today, and the power of the gospel to heal those divides is just as powerful today as it was then. And as God's people, we not only have peace, we not only have shalom with him, but we extend the shalom of God into the world. What does that look like? It looks like all kinds of things, really, on, from the most interpersonal to corporate level. I'll share a few examples, illustrations, and as I do, I want to share a few contrasts to help uh, clarify what peacemaking uh, really is as Jesus defines it. So one first contrast, I want to spell out the difference between peacemaking and simply keeping the peace. Peacemaking is not synonymous with just keeping the peace. If you look at what it meant for Jesus to make peace in Ephesians 2, he, he actually radically altered the landscape. When Jesus came into the world, he was not just uh, keeping his peace about the things that were wrong, uh, but he challenged people. He spoke truth into their lives. And he radically altered the landscape. You know, there was a certain peace that existed between Jews and Gentiles before he came and that they were just totally separate from one another. But Jesus turned that on its head, changed people's entire identity and how they related to one another. And a lot of people were not happy with their fellow Jews and fellow Gentiles who joined this Jesus movement. They accused them of causing trouble and abandoning their roots. Sometimes peacemaking itself is not a peaceful process. Jesus' shalom was not always well received. One of the great Christian peacemakers of, in our history is Martin Luther King, who we honor him now. We've got a street downtown named after him. My alma mater loves to brag that Martin Luther King went there for a time uh, with the holiday. At the time, though, when he began his ministry of, of shalom making in the Jim Crow South, he was not always well received, faced a lot of opposition, and in fact, he was uh, accused of disturbing the peace by a lot of his fellow clergy. Uh, if you've ever read a letter from a Birmingham jail, which I recommend that you do, uh, it's really a response to his fellow clergy who accused him of disturbing the peace. Like, why are you causing trouble down here? Why do you have to you know, d disturb the peace. And he wrote a brilliant response to them. One thing he said in that letter, he said, I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the Ku Klux Klaner, but the moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, and who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, 
which is the presence of justice. There's a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, but what Jesus is talking about is a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, the presence of shalom. There was a certain peace in the Jim Crow South under segregation if everyone stayed in their place, but that was not shalom by any stretch of the imagination. And those who tried to keep the peace in those times actually really got in the way of true shalom taking place. And that can happen at any level. You know, peacemaking is not the same as keeping the peace. It's true in interpersonal relationships as well. You know, some of us are from families that have a long history of conflict avoidance, which can really be every bit as dysfunctional as a family that has shouting matches with one another. And sometimes to be a peacemaker in those settings is actually to be the one who bothers to say something, who bothers to break the pattern of conflict avoidance and address the underlying hurts and address the patterns of brokenness that exist. On college campuses where I work, uh, a lot of students think they're just fine without Jesus. And some of the best peacemakers I know are the young women and men who engage their fellow students with the gospel. It takes intentionality and invitation. They ask them questions and they engage and they challenge them on their beliefs. A peacemaker at work could be the one who calls out unfair and unethical practices in the company. That can certainly ruffle some feathers, but it can be the path to true shalom. In a church, the peacemaker could be the one who cuts through the polite facade that people put up even though they know that there's real conflict there. And they stop talking behind people's backs but directly address conflicts that are brewing. Other times now, peacemaking does involve biting our tongues. It does involve not saying everything that comes to our minds. Maybe you're in a family where you need to stop the shouting matches all to show that peace is a complicated thing. It requires wisdom from the authority on peace, Jesus, to know when to speak, when not to, and how to act. But just to say, peacemaking is not synonymous with just keeping the peace. Another contrast to draw out is uh, that between costly peacemaking and peace at any cost. So peacemaking is costly. For Jesus, it meant entering into our human mess, taking upon himself the brunt of our sin and brokenness, taking the cost of peace on himself. And look at Ephesians 2. He made peace through the cross and in his flesh. For Jesus, peace meant crucifixion. It was costly for him and it is costly for his people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship, his kingdom is one of peace, His disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering rather than inflict it on others. They maintain fellowship where others would break it off. They renounce all self-assertion and quietly suffer in the face of hatred and wrong. In doing so, they overcome evil with good and establish the peace of God in the midst of a world of war and hate. The peacemakers carry the cross with their Lord, for it was on the cross that peace was made." Peacemaking is costly for followers of Jesus. It requires us to humble ourselves, to enter into the mess, to get in the crossfire, bear the brunt of people's brokenness and anger and hurt. It requires us to go the extra mile, to bear the weight of human brokenness, to give up our right for revenge and vindication. 
Bonhoeffer himself experienced the cost of peacemaking. He was a, a German pastor during the Nazi regime, and he had plenty of opportunities to relocate and enjoy a more peaceful life in the U.S. or various other places. But he obeyed God's call to return to Germany to seek the shalom of his people under truly awful circumstances. And he ended up dying in a concentration camp for it. So this, this same guy, though, Bonhoeffer, he wrote these words about bearing wrong and, and, and you know, carrying the cross with your Lord. He, he was not a guy who was about peace at any cost, though. Peace was costly for him, but not at any cost. And in fact, the same guy who wrote these words was accused of being a pretty divisive person in the church. As soon as Hitler was elected in 1933, Bonhoeffer began to call to his fellow pastors and say, you know, we've got to oppose this regime. He could see the writing on the wall. He said, we, we cannot partner with this government, with the Nazis. And the majority of his peers said, no, stop causing trouble. Stop causing division. Like, don't, don't, don't rock the boat. We can work with these guys. We should try to work with these guys. Maybe we can influence these guys. But those who wanted to keep the peace with the Nazis eventually and slowly found their church being taken over by the state. Uh, they had Nazi-appointed pastors, Nazi-approved sermons that proclaimed loyalty to the state over the kingdom of God and proclaimed uh, German identity as more important than identity in Christ. And this became a large part of the problem and why Hitler got away with so much of what he did. Meanwhile, Bonhoeffer became a leader in what was called the Confessing Church, which uh, kind of broke away from the state-sponsored church, which proclaimed the gospel over and above national identity and national loyalty. He founded an underground seminary to make sure that pastors were being equipped to preach the true gospel of peace and shalom, the only hope for shalom in Germany at the time. And out of the Confessing Church, Bonhoeffer and some others actually took part in an assassination plot against Hitler, which goes to show again uh, the road to peace is a complicated one, requires wisdom and guidance from Jesus, the true authority on peace and shalom making. But Bonhoeffer was accused of being divisive. He refused to compromise on the gospel. Now compare him with a, a recent leader in an American denomination who uh, had ordained a number of clergy who openly said they did not believe in the authority of the Bible, they didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus, didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and really core, basic things to the Christian faith. And he was ordaining these people, and he was quoted publicly as saying, well, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, choose heresy every time. That's peace at any cost. Choose heresy. And what would Bonhoeffer say to that? He'd say, what a bunch of crap. Except he'd say it in German, and so it would sound so much more forceful and awesome. <laughs> what a bunch of crap! You don't choose heresy? The peace of Jesus in Ephesians 2, it's built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. It's a peace that comes at great personal cost to Jesus and his followers, but not at the cost of the gospel itself. Because if you lose the gospel, you lose the power and the basis for true shalom. Peace is costly, but we're not to make peace at any cost. Finally, I want to 
highlight the difference between peacemaking and just peace-loving. Now again, the verb that's part of peacemaking is an active action verb. Peace for kingdom people is not a bumper sticker, a slogan, it's not a cause to like or an article to post, and it's not simply a theological idea to agree with. It is something that we make and something that we do. And one of the traps in the university world where I work is that it, it's very easy to believe that, you know, once you've just talked about an issue or written about an issue, discussed an issue, that you've actually done something, which is not necessarily true. I was so proud this past year in kind of the, the aftermath of the events in Ferguson back in November and December. I was so proud of our InterVarsity students and staff in New England and in Missouri and St. Louis and all across the country. So they really entered into the fray. They really were proactive in trying to take steps to make peace and make shalom. Uh, I was so proud. that uh, A lot of them got to speak at the different rallies and things that took place on campus. Like in one, one campus in Connecticut, we had a, a black and white student leader stand up together and share powerfully about the power of, of reconciliation between them. They've actually already been talking about these things before they became trendy. And, and their story, their testimony, blew people away, and it, it drew people to their Bible study. Other cases, we weren't invited to the campus events. There's one campus in particular, a really super-duper progressive liberal arts college where we work that put on all kinds of rallies and events, and they were you know, really proud of themselves. They put the stuff on their website. Look what we're doing to say something. Um, and the university staff and students, they, they went to those, but they felt, oh, something's missing. So they, they called kind of a a conversation. They, they were a pretty diverse group themselves, but they invited all the black students they knew to just come and, and, and tell their stories, tell their experiences, and, and basically take the posture of just listening and, and perhaps praying for them if they wanted, but, but really listening. And the, uh, several students came. It was a little more low-key. Um, and at the end of it, one of them told our staff, you know, the, the campus has put on all these events and they, you know, they say all these things, but this is the first time anyone has actually asked us to speak. And this is the first place where anyone has actually asked us how we're doing. And I would go so far as to say that that gathering was really the place more than anywhere else on campus where they felt and experienced that their black lives truly mattered. And out of it came a number of new relationships and new friendships and even a new Bible study. Reconciliation on, on many levels. In this scene, it doesn't make for exciting news, but it has played out on campus after campus across the country this year. And I couldn't be prouder because really kingdom people, they do not just love peace. They don't just talk about peace. They make peace. They do it. And... The promise is they shall be called children of God. The peacemakers shall be called children of God. There's a few levels on which this is true, I think. One is that, uh, you know, making peace is really taking part in the family business of our Father. Our Father is in the business of making peace and making shalom, as we see in Ephesians 2. And to make peace as his followers is to really take our part in the family business. 
Some of your translations might say, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Uh, What's helpful about that translation is sonship in the biblical context really took on this dimension of kind of being an apprentice and taking on the family business. Uh, So it's helpful in that way. What's helpful about children of God is it does highlight that you do not need to be a guy in order to be a peacemaker. But we're children of God. We take on the family business when we make peace, when we do peace and extend it to the world around us. And we bear the family likeness. We show the world what God is like when we make peace and when we do shalom in the world. And I think we really touch our father's heart and make him proud. I'm a proud father when we engage in the work of peacemaking, the hard and costly and sometimes anonymous work of peacemaking. We make our dad so proud. Now, I want to be careful to say, now, these beatitudes are not ways that we earn God's favors. Like, don't be a peacemaker so that God will like you. God loves his children. Our identity as his children is secure, and it's not based on our works. But, you know, those of you who are parents, you, you, know, you love your kids unconditionally, and nothing changed that. But there are certain things your kids do that just touch your heart. They just delight your, your heart. They just make you smile just make you so proud. You know, maybe when they're, when they're kind to their siblings or the, the older one looks out for the younger one or uh, you're a Christian parent and your child prays from the heart for the first time or something like that. Just, oh, just delights your heart. And I think that is true of our father when we engage in the work of peacemaking. I was trying to think of an image for this and it's imperfect, but I remember when Ray Allen played for the Celtics. And I, and I love Ray I miss Ray Allen, but even more than Ray Allen, I, I miss his mom, Flo. This is Flo Allen. At every Celtics game, she'd be there courtside in her number 20 Ray Allen jersey. And anytime he made a big shot, the camera would cut to Flo. And she'd just be cheering, and, and you could read her lips on the camera. That's my boy. That's my boy. I hesitate to compare God to Flo Allen. And this is an <laughs> illustration, an imperfect illustration, but just something about the way it touches God's heart when we engage in the costly work of peacemaking that makes him say, man, that's my boy. That's my girl. It touches his heart. He's so proud. King and Bonhoeffer, they died violent deaths at the prime age of 39. I think God looked at them and said, oh, those are my boys. Our our InterVarsity staff who led conversations on campus that uh, did not make the front page of the website. And God looked at her and said, oh, that's my girl. I've, you've probably never heard of John Ruchahana or Emmanuel Collini, two Anglican bishops in Rwanda in the aftermath of the genocide from different ethnic groups, two of many whose names we'll never know. And, and they were actually even kind of looked down upon by their Anglican colleagues in America for being sort of simple ignorant people for believing the Bible at its word, but God looks at them and says, oh, that's my boy. Those are my kids. Those of you who are teachers and social workers who who love children even though they don't appreciate it at all because they bear the image of God, God looks at you and says, oh, that's my girl. That's my boy. Those of you who speak up in your workplaces to make them more fair, more right, more ethical and just, 
God's proud, delights his heart. Those of you in churches who refuse to gossip and engage in just parking lot conversations, but, but meaningfully make peace and reconciliation where it's needed and bear the cost of peacemaking in yourself like Jesus did. God says, ah, oh, those are my kids. Delights his heart. Next week, we'll, we'll be doing the Convoy of Hope along with lots of other churches in Worcester, I think that'll especially delight God's heart to engage in bringing shalom to our city in places where it's missing. There is a lot of ways in which shalom is lacking and that many of our citizens don't have things that we consider basic necessities. And we're gonna band together as God's children across churches and across denominations. I don't know how it's gonna go, but I know that God is gonna delight in his children. Lou's been working so hard on it put in so many hours that we don't see, putting in so many hours on his knees, praying for the shalom of our city. God sees him and says, oh, that's my boy. And I long to be a church that God just delights in. That we, his children, will dive into the family business in every way he calls us to. That we will bear his likeness in our city, in our communities, in our families, in our homes. And we'll just make him proud, delight him, and touch his heart. Truly be living out our identity as his children as we make peace, as we do peace, as we do shalom and extend the shalom that he has graciously made possible for us. Let me pray. Lord, we, we just offer ourselves to you. We, we first thank you for bearing in yourself the cost of our peace with you. We were distant from you. We were far from you. Lord, for anyone here who still has not made peace with you, Lord, would you reach out to them, stir their hearts to receive your peace, your shalom. Do you make them right with you? Lord, for those of us who have received your peace, who've said yes to you, who delight in the fact that you bore the cost yourself, would you make us peacemakers? Not just people who talk about it, who agree with it, who have a theology of peace, but who do it, who are known for it. Would we seek the peace of our city to which you've sent us? Would we make your name great by exhibiting the family business, the family character here where we are. And Lord, I pray for particular situations as well where we know there is brokenness, where there is broken relationship right now. For anyone here who's got family members that they just haven't spoken to in a while, where there is hurt, where there's the need for healing and forgiveness, Lord, where there's brokenness at work, where there is unaddressed anger, bitterness, conflict in any of our hearts. Lord, teach us what it means to be peacemakers. And I pray that peace and shalom would come to these situations by your grace, by your power. We pray your peace and shalom would come to our city today as we feed the homeless next week as we engage in the convoy of hope. And we pray that we'd get to delight your hearts. We just love you so much, Lord. We're so grateful. 
for the peace you've given us. We long to share it. Open up the ways for us to share it. Help us bear the cost of peacemaking in ourselves and know your delight as we do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.